Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. A bit thin on the ground today, but uh, can't be helped. Maybe people knew I was speaking this morning. Um, <laughs> um, great. Um, before I start, I've got a little quiz for you. Um, can we have the first slide up, please? Does anyone know what they are? Got a jackfruit, any other thoughts? No, good, good guess though, good guess. Um, it's actually a darian fruit. I don't know if that's the same as a jackfruit, but Wikipedia said darian fruit. So these are really big, sort of prickly, very spiky fruits. They're about 30 centimeters long, and they're known for their really, really horrible smell. So no one's tasted these. They're supposed to taste really good, but they smell awful. Um, some have described them as smelling like rotten onions, turpentine, or raw sewage. So, yeah, doesn't sound particularly appealing. Um, okay, next slide, please. Does anyone know what these are? No, no. Any guesses? These are a bit obscure, just, just to warn you. Uh, ugly? Uh, no, these are medlars. Medlars. Yes, and you eat medlars through a process of bletting. Has anyone heard of bletting? Um, probably not. Uh, bletting involves the, the softening of the fruit after ripening, so effectively you eat them raw. But they taste really good. Apparently, it tastes like apple kind of mixed with cinnamon. I've not tried them, but yeah. So I, I think you can make jam, they, they make jam out of medlars. So have a look, look it out, look it up. Um, okay, next slide, please. Does anyone know what that is? Sorry? A funny lemon, close, close. No, no. <clears throat> this is an etrog or an etrog. Sounds like something you can buy off Amazon or something. Um, this, this is actually, it's a, it's a sort of type of citron fruit. So lemon is the kind of lemon family, but it's called the etrog or etrog. And um, this is the, the etrog is, the, is a Hebrew word uh, that the Jews use during the holiday of Sukkot. And together with other fruits, the, the etrog is taken in hand and held or waved during parts of the holiday prayers and special care is taken to select the right type of fruit. So it has to look and be you know, shaped in a particular way um, for, for the festival. So there you go. Um, so that was just three little, uh, three fruit I wanted to just you know, test your knowledge. Um, they were a bit obscure, so apologies. But it's slightly related to what I'm gonna be talking about this morning. Um, so if we go on to, so fruit and famine. Uh, we're gonna be looking at Amos 8 this morning. Um, fruit and famine sounds a bit like some kind of dystopian chocolate bar or cereal. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been asked to look at chapter 8. And just a quick catch up for everybody, just a reminder. Um, apologies if you've heard this before, um, but I know we've been looking at Amos for a few weeks now. Um, so, you know, some of you may have forgotten or you may have missed a few Sundays. So I'm just going to do a quick recap of the book of Amos. So um, the year is about 780 to 750 BC. 
King Jeroboam II is king of northern Israel, and he's become very wealthy and powerful, but he's allowed things to slip quite badly. Jeroboam's success has led to a nation that has become consumed by idolatry of false gods and injustice towards the poor. And so a shepherd and fig tree farmer called Amos, who's had enough of all this behavior, senses God calling him to the city of Bethel um, in the Northern Kingdom to announce God's words to the people. And he does so in the form of sermons, poems, and visions, which are given over several years. And it's all collected together later on in the book of Amos. Now, Amos 8 comes at the end section of the book, chapter 7, 8, and 9, where we read about five visions that the prophet has for Israel. Chapter 8 features a vision of ripe fruit, signaling judgment for the people of Israel for its immoral behavior, and ends with an ominous declaration of a coming famine. There are two things I want to focus on uh, in this chapter today. Uh, at the beginning and the end, but I'm going to read the whole passage first. So let's do Amos 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I'll spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing, many, many bodies, flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. So at the beginning of Amos 8, God shows the prophet a vision of something he would have been very familiar with, a basket of ripe fruit. Some translations say summer fruit. The basket most likely contained fruit like pomegranates, grapes, and figs. 
which is ironic given the fact that Amos's profession actually involved figs. God says to Amos, the time is right for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. What may not be obvious is that in these verses, something gets slightly lost in the translation from Hebrew to English. There's a play on words happening in the original Hebrew. Amos answers God's question of, what do you see? By saying he sees ripe fruit or a basket of summer fruit. But when God responds, he uses a similar sounding word that means end. In English, we understand the meaning of the phrase, the time is ripe. But the Hebrew translation would have sounded much more ominous, provoking a strong response to Jewish ears because of this wordplay. This imagery of a basket of fruit is something typically associated with harvest time. It's a time of thanksgiving, celebration, looking forward to the future. This is in stark contrast to the first vision we read about in Amos 7, which was mentioned last week, where the threat of locusts destroying the crops means possible starvation. As I'm sure you're aware, fruit features quite a lot in the Bible. It's much more than just a food for the ancient Israelites. It was a symbol that appeared prominently in the names, the laws, proverbs, and traditions of their culture. Not only do people in the Bible eat, grow, or sell fruit, but also individuals are named after fruit. Some cities and towns get their names from fruit. Fruit are used as decorations on buildings or clothing. Fruit is subject to the law. Metaphors and similes often involve fruit. So for example, Eve eats forbidden fruit in Genesis. Galatians talks about the fruit of the spirit. Aaron's priestly garments are decorated with pomegranates. And Jesus talks about the vine. And there's many, many more. So coming back to Amos, we have a vision of something very wholesome and positive, the basket of fruit. However, in this instance in Amos 8, the reference to ripe fruit is the complete opposite. It brings to mind the phrase rotten to the core. Israel had become rotten to the core and the Lord was at the end of his tether. He'd had enough and was going to deal with the people like a piece of overripe fruit that leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And I don't know if anyone's ever bitten into a piece of fruit that is slightly rotten. It's not very nice. Mocha's interpretation of the line mimics the word play where it says, they came into the presence of God, not just with ripe fruit, but as ripe fruit, ripened over all the months and years of moral and spiritual probation, which he'd afforded them. And now sadly, ready for a particularly dreadful harvest time. So here's a little side question um, along the way. What's the fruit of our Christian faith? Is it ripe, as in the good kind of ripe? Or is it the wrong kind of ripe, where it's ripened too far and the fruit is no longer edible and needs to be thrown away? Because of time, I'm gonna skip to, uh, to the end. But before I do, I'm just gonna quickly point out a few key things from the middle of the chapter. There's a section about Israel's immoral behavior, and that's been referenced um, already earlier in the book. In chapter eight, there's a mention of the way they cheated at transactions, 
something which is explicitly forbidden by Jewish law. Then there was the maltreatment and exploitation of the poor, treating them like objects and seeking to extract as much profit from them as possible. They looked at people and they saw things. They looked at others and thought about themselves. And that turned out to be the sin of all sins. The Almighty is unable to show mercy on those who themselves do not show mercy to others. This is the grim but biblically realistic truth of Amos 8. A terrible fate awaits those who choose to show no compassion to the poor. This is the sign of a false religion, of a faith that is dead. Then there are sections talking about the certainty of judgment and the extent of this judgment, which is pretty heavy stuff. I'll turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth, sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This prophecy eventually came to pass about 30 years later. The northern kingdom of Israel was wiped off the map by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom of Judah was invaded by the Babylonians a couple of centuries later, bringing them into captivity. That was the worst outcome a nation could experience, and they only had themselves to blame. And so we read verses 11 to 12. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos is not prophesying your typical famine of food and water. Instead, a famine of hearing of God's word or divine silence. In Matthew 4, Jesus says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it can be said that a famine of hearing God's word is ultimately worse than a famine of bread. In the vision, the people of Israel are wandering around seeking the word of the Lord, but not finding it. When we seek God, it generally becomes easier to find him. When we push away from God, though, it generally becomes more difficult to hear and receive his word. Jesus alluded to this principle in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. There's been a lot of hard stuff covered in Amos up to this point, but let us not be despondent. In the final chapter of Amos, uh, chapter nine, this theme of judgment does continue and things get worse before they get better. But right at the end, there is a vision of future blessing. God must judge, but he's also willing to forgive and to forget. There is hope, and that is something uh, I think Martin's going to be covering uh, in a few weeks' time. So what can we take away from Amos 8? 
Clearly, Israel was in a very bad place during Amos's time. And you can just imagine God's frustration at the nation's blatant disregard for his laws and instructions. Seeing all of the idolatry, the false faith, immorality, mistreatment of the poor, it must have been deeply upsetting. Now, I don't think we at Woody have a particularly bad problem with dishonesty or mistreatment of the poor. A lot of work has been done within the church to explore issues of justice, for example. I know most of you, and you know, you're not perfect, but you're all right. <laughs> and myself included, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Um, but it doesn't mean we should be complacent. We should be consistently, constantly checking ourselves to ensure we don't slide into attitudes or lifestyles that don't measure up to the plumb line of God. That's why it's so important to return to scripture again and again. To use another metaphor, it's like the Bible is our compass, always pointing north. We, we have to keep checking it as we travel to ensure that we're going in the right direction. I know we don't use compasses anymore, do we use our, our phones, but you know, I hope you all know what a compass is. Um, you know, if, if we choose to walk without the compass, chances are we'll end up going around in circles. So this leads me to the main point I want to share, which stems from verses 11 to 12, which talks about the famine of hearing. In preparing this sermon, I feel that God has really spoken to me personally about the importance of scripture and studying God's word. We don't want to be like the Israelites. We, we don't want to be where they're reading the word, but there's just nothing. They're just getting nothing from it. And, you know, it's something I have struggled with. I'm not standing here saying, I've, you know, I've got this sorted. Um, but I do think it's something that God is challenging us about. Um, I've been reading this book. I don't know if anyone has read this. Stranger in a Strange Land. Anyone? No? It's a bit of an obscure sci-fi classic, and um, it's really dull. It's really boring. Um, and uh, I started reading this after Christmas, I think, and I'm still like three quarters of the way through. And it's a real drudge, and it's like, oh. But I want to read it. I want to complete it, because I'm a completist. And it's like a classic book, so I should read it and, you know, but it's just go, it just goes on and on. It's just like, oh. um, and I, I like, I enjoy reading, you know, if, if, uh, if a book is good and it's engaging, I, you know, I'll just, I'll just go right through it. But, you know, and I usually read um, at bedtime, but I, I tend not to, I just rather watch TV because... <laughs> So, but I've got, to, I've got to get through this. I will get through this. So, you know, come and ask me, you know, in a few months' time, have you finished your book yet? Um, but, you know, often when I'm reading the book, I'm reading the pages, I'll, just, I'll read a page and then uh, I'll just think, what did I just read? I, and I can't remember any of it. It's just, it's just not gone in at all. Have you ever done that? Where you, Yeah. Um, and that just made me think of, you know, what, what Amos is talking about here, of, of just reading it and just nothing going in, and it's just not engaging. Um, and I think the title is quite interesting, Stranger in a Strange Land. You know, sometimes it, it can feel like that when you're reading the Bible, um, that, that it's all very strange and, and weird. But um, yeah, we need to persevere. It says, um, in a, a quote from a guy called Meyer, we may question ourselves whether we feed enough on God's word, 
If we would grow strong, we must feed, not on condiments and sweetmeats, not on tidbits and scraps, but on the strong meat of the word, on the doctrines, histories, types of scripture. Oh, for more hunger and thirst for these. Do we use the Bible in a superficial way? Do we just dip in and out when we feel like it? Do we treat it like a quick fix or a little pick-me-up just to keep us going? Or do we approach it with the right amount of reverence, knowing that God's word is living, it's active and transformative in power? Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Going back to the subject of fruit from earlier, what's the fruit of your Bible study? Do you feel scripture working in your heart on a particular issue? Does it help you feel closer to the Lord? Does it prompt you? Does it inspire you? Scripture primarily helps us to turn from cultural sins to God's ways by combining an analysis of our problems and challenges that we face with the gospel message and the Bible as a whole. It's important to be aware that scripture is the primary source of God's revelation to his people. It's how he mainly speaks to us. Words, pictures and dreams, etc., they, they have their place. But if we don't have a strong grasp of God's word, it's very easy for these things to, uh, to get out of hand. There's always that danger that it can be middled, but muddled by our own sinful limitations or twisted by dark forces. I know the Bible can be difficult, and you know, I've said already, you know, this is not something I'm, I've got completely sorted. But like I said, we, we must persevere. There is help and there's guidance out there. And I'm convinced that the more we seek God in Scripture, the more it will open up to us and become easier. So one final thought. Let us not take this book, this book here. I mean, it's not just it's not about the book, is it? It's not about the pages, the paper, the ink, but, but the words. Let's not take them for granted. It's worth remembering that in many countries around the world, Possession of a Bible can lead to a jail sentence or even worse. It's very easy to be complacent living in today's society here in the UK, but we cannot just assume we'll be able to enjoy these freedoms indefinitely. So, as I finish, just a few points to consider. If this resonates with you, I encourage you to pray about um, what's, what's come up in Amos 8. Know that God's revelation to us, first and foremost, com comes from his word and is easily accessible. The Bible is of its time and place, so we need to understand the cultural and historical context when we read it, rather than impose the, the context of our own culture and background onto it. Invite the Holy Spirit to guide you every time you open your Bible. Seek help from wise individuals where necessary. Speak to the elders. We even have a theologian at our disposal, um, good man Rob over there. Talk to him, I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you about anything, any questions you have about the Bible. And finally, be on guard. Be on guard for false teaching. What is the fruit of those teachers? 
Matthew 7, 15 to 23, uh, warns us about that. So, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation in scripture and how it serves to keep our lives aligned with your plans and purposes. Open our hearts, Lord, and let us not be like the nation of Israel in Amos's time, when they would not and could not hear from you. Draw us close and speak to us, Lord. Amen.